Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons podcast with me, Simon Mundy, in which I get to explore some of life's bigger questions with many of the world's most interesting people. In this episode, with the World Cup on, we are revisiting a conversation with England's one and only World Cup winning head coach, Sir Clive Woodward, who of course steered England to glory down under, unforgettably, two decades ago. I sat down a while back to talk about some of the key lessons Clive learned, particularly around leadership, and he came out with some absolute gems. So grab your notebook, or not, and enjoy Sir Clive Woodward. Clive Woodward, how are you? Very well, thank you. Good to be here. Listen, I've got to tell you, I was out there in 2003. I was in Australia. I couldn't actually quite believe it happened. England winning the Rugby World Cup, to me, that helped all the success in all the other sports in all the years that we've enjoyed since. To what degree do you go along with that statement? Well, it's very kind of you to say that. I'm, I'm not sure I can comment on that in, 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 outside of... Uh, um, I think the more I look back, the more I realise that was a pretty amazing achievement, especially that night. I mean... Even looking at the recent World Cup in Japan, you know, people were saying to me after England played so well against New Zealand, that was the best ever performance and all this, which potentially it was. Then when I saw the team lose in the final, I suddenly started to think back because everyone said to me, well, you, you, yes, you won the World Cup final, but you didn't really play that well. Looking back now, I think we played really well to actually oh, yeah. deliver a World Cup final win. Um, when you think the team actually won in Australia against a really good coach in Eddie, a really top team. The the Australians had just beaten New Zealand in the semi-final. So the more thing about it, that night was absolutely probably England's best ever performance because yeah. we actually won won the tournament. And um, it, it, it's, it's, it's interesting, since that game a couple of weeks ago, you know, so many people have said to me, you know, what, what happened, what happened? And my best conversation was with the taxi driver 
who said to me what happened, and I was trying to explain. He said, it's a bit like he said, it's a bit like going to the Olympics, watching Usain Bolt in the semi-final, get the world record, and everyone's going, wow, 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 this is amazing. And then three days later in the final, he comes fourth. You know, and, he's, and he, it was a great analogy because what he was trying to say is, you know, <laughs> World Cups are not about performance, getting 10 out of 10 and all, these, all this stuff, it's about winning. Uh-huh. And, and Olympic Games are no different than that. So it's about winning gold medals and there, you know, no one remembers who came, who came second. And you know, England being to four World Cup finals, now we've won one. So looking back at 2003, it, it was you know, a huge achievement, which I'm hugely proud of and everyone involved in the team. I certainly think, though, for me, I know you're not going to be drawn in it, but for me, it broke that glass ceiling. And I think that a lot of the Olympics, various successes that have come that, and that we've become used to, to me, can be almost traced back to some degree to that moment because it suddenly made everyone realise that actually, under the greatest pressure, on the biggest stage, British size, English side, can actually do the business. I mean, it was like the Roger Bannister. To what degree this is a bit of a myth or not, but, you know, that he did the four-minute mark and then... Everyone knows it's possible, yeah. and then it happens. Well, it was great. I think what, what I really enjoyed was after the World Cup was meeting um, coaches from other, other sports. You know, Dave Brailsford was, you know, he was, I mean, that sums him up. He wanted to know all about it. He just, he just wanted to meet him on a kind of, you know, totally kind of dissect everything we've done, how we're going to win about dinner. And I suddenly started to meet, you know, football coaches, Brailsford, a lot of Olympic coaches. And that's what I really enjoyed. And it wasn't... You know, and it, and it was just sharing views and ideas, and and because there is a, a commonality going through how you actually do this. It's a high-performing team. You know, I have the saying that you know great teams are made of great individuals. Although you're, you're very proud, you're managing a team. I think sometimes you can overdo the team stuff, where you know I, I'm very very clear about this. If you get every individual in your team operating at his or her optimum level, the team stuff becomes a lot easier to do. So in yeah. other words, in in the rugby team, I'm trying to create players who are the best in the world. And there's no doubt, you know, in that World Cup final team in 2003, you know, we probably had six or seven players who had gold medals around their neck, meaning they would have gotten any team. Yeah. And we had four or five with silvers and a couple with bronzes. So everyone's on the podium. So you look at your team, if you've got that and everybody is really doing their jobs, 24-7, 365, trying to become the best player they possibly can, the team stuff becomes a lot easier to do. Mm. And that's what I think we achieved. In your new book, How to Win, you talk obviously about, like, leaders and basically empower great people to some degree and what i found interesting as well is is your journey you actually you were a football man and then were sort of press ganged into playing rugby press ganged all the way up into the england team a frustrating experience wasn't a huge amount of winning and certainly didn't play the style of rugby that you like to play 90s england started to get a bit of success and then when you came in though you didn't even have an office from that moment through to the end culturally you had completely transformed the setup and that's that's at the base of, of all the success we all enjoy yeah i think i was looking looking back i was kind of lucky because you know as a player um you know i played in the amateur days you know, and they really were amateur um, i was lucky enough to play in one grand slam team for, for england in 1980 with an amazing group of players you know billy beaumont mm-hmm. and frank cotton peter wheeler roger rutley we had a household names and we won one Grand Slam in 1980. Outside of that, we were the big underachievers. We, the, the game was so, so amateur. You know, I played 21 times for England, which doesn't sound very many today, but that was like four or five years in those days because we only really had the five nations to play in. Um, and, and looking back now, we were so amateur, and I, I would have given them a right arm, and still would today, to play professional rugby or professional sport in that one small moment in your time where you can give it everything. And I couldn't do that. You know, I was, you know, it, I was working for Xerox at the time, who was a photocopy company up in Leicester. And, you know, I'd literally played for England on a Saturday in front of 75,000 people. 
and all that goes with that. And then Monday morning, I'm in the rank Xerox office, giving my forecast in how many flipping photocopies I'm going to sell that week. <laughs> I mean, looking back now, you couldn't make it up, but that was yeah. what amateur was about. And then lucky enough, the game goes professional. I'm running my own small finance company now. And I, and I think what the running your own businesses um, gave me a really, really big leg up into actually coaching the actual team because, you know, when the game went professional, I was the first full-time professional coach. And you kind of started from a blank bit of paper. So I was really lucky. It, it was, you know, I literally didn't have an office or anything in, in Twickenham. You know, no one knew what was going on. And I could just start from scratch. And I just kind of threw the kitchen sink at it in terms of all my experience, but mainly my business experience mm. about how to how to develop. And all I knew, and I said to the players from day one, you know, we ranked six in the world, never been above six in the world, which is ridiculous considering the players we've mm. got, the money we've got, the expertise we've got in England. I was determined to keep the whole organisation English, you know. I, brought, I started to really develop the team. And I have to say the RFU, which is often a much maligned organisation, they were fantastic with me, you know. The chief executive came in, a guy called Francis Barron, he totally backed what I did. You know, it wasn't easy. You got to sit down with these guys and explain it to them, but they backed me what I was trying to do. And you know, we, it wasn't a straight line. We had, you know, big losses. We lost in the quarterfinals of the first World Cup. I'd only been there less than two years. You know, we got beat by South Africa, but they were fantastic. They totally backed me, and it was really, really strange that looking back now because they backed me totally. You win the World Cup. And then you think it's all going to go fantastic. We're going to take a real dynasty. We'll never, ever get yeah. beaten by the All Blacks again. <laughs> and then we all fall out after the World Cup. And it was yeah. one of those strange period of time. Yeah, really. It's only just sort of got back together in many ways, you know, since that time. Yeah, that's why I think Eddie's done a good job because, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to call out anyone's names, but I think we have made some mistakes on, you know, who was, who was coaching the team, what we've done. There's been a big, big gap since 2003, basically. Uh, I think Jones came in four years ago and we, you know, we just got bombed out of our own tournament, didn't make the quarterfinals even, which was a huge disappointment. Again, you, you just can't believe we've got a, a World Cup at Twickenham and we, we don't get out of the pool, which was just not acceptable. So I think Jones has come in and it's a good place for him to come in. It's a bit like me, you come in, you're absolutely rock bottom, you can only go one, one way and he's a, he's a, he's a top coach um, and he's done a great job. You know, Four years later, we've made the World Cup final, but you know, he'll be... The whole team would be devastated by what happened in the final, but but he, he got them to the World Cup final, which yeah. is an amazing achievement. And their young side, you know, four years on. Anyway, listen, let, let's turn our attention, though, to what you have distilled down here. So you, you mentioned Xerox, and, it, and even though you wish you could have played professional rugby, had you not had all your experiences at Xerox, you clearly brought some of your external experience to bear in the England role. Could you have done that without your external experience? And the reason I ask that is I've done a, a podcast on diversity and diversity of experience and how valuable it can be bringing knowledge in from a different sphere. And it, and it seems like that's what you did. Oh, I'm massive on diversity. I actually run a company now called Hive Learning, which is all about diversity and inclusion and, and, and understanding the importance of it in, in, in all these ways in, in terms of the culture of the business, but just thoughts and ideas. And I think um, I had two business careers. One was Xerox, big, big multinational. But probably most importantly, probably more importantly, was then, you know, um, in the early 90s, I set up my own small leasing and finance company based on the skills I learned with Xerox and Xerox Finance. So I set a small business up. And I was running that small company, and we grew it from two people to, like, ten. So it was generally small. But it was just, like, ten people in a room. There was ten of us. It was, it was great, great fun. Uh, and I learned so much. I was, you know, I was obviously the, the boss. I was the chief executive. But you, you just learn how to handle people. You had to take risks, how to, you know, get things done. So when you take over the England rugby team, it's no different. You're running a small business. And this is what I say to people. Running a rugby team is no different than running a business. Right. It's, it's achieving results through people. And that's why I come back to my favorite line. You know, great teams are made of great individuals. It's mm. all about the people. 
And I was dead lucky. You had an amazing group of, group of players, you know, Martin Johnson, Delalio, Wilkinson, you know all these guys. But they'd never achieved anything. And I had to set the vision that this was only had one, one goal in mind. And it wasn't actually to win the World Cup. It was to become the number one ranked team in the world. To do that, that shows excellence over a sustained period of time, which we kind of delivered on. But I think my, the, what I learned from running my own small business gave me the kind of real confidence of handling people. Also, things like just managing upwards, being able to talk to the chief executive of the board at the RFU, get things done, take these people with you. And I said, you know, the RFU were fantastic with me. They really did back what I was, what I was doing. And I like to think we delivered in, you know, in uh, spades, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the lessons, you know, that you talk about are very much obviously applicable to sporting teams. They're taken from your time with England, but also to, to businesses. And to some degree, you can almost apply them individually. And you talk about, you know, a winning culture being about well-judged risk. Yeah. I think well-judged risk, th- this is this is predicated by what I call learning. Um, mm. Again, I have this saying about relentless learning. If you're an individual... Um, if I'm going to work with you, I, I want to try and make you the best broadcaster in the world. That's our goal. But this has got to be a two-way thing. So if I'm working with a, a rugby player or any, anybody, you know, this, I want to make you better at what you actually do. But we need a two-way thing. And to be a two-way thing, you've got to engage in the process. I want you to become a great learner. I want you to be out there studying what's going on. You coming back to me with ideas. So it's not just a one-way thing where I'm yeah. coaching you and it's all from th- this side of the desk. I think to, to create champion individuals, it's about a two-way process. And... We're going to get on fine if I feel you're putting in the effort, you're learning, you're coming up with thoughts and ideas. We are going to fall out if I think this is one way and you're sitting there going, well, you're the coach, I'm the player, I'll do what I'm told. That's not what champions do. And my experience in Olympic sports was fantastic because, you know, I had this incredible experience with England, met absolute superstar rugby players. But then when you go in the Olympic world, you see the DNA is no different. When you're lucky enough to meet, you know, Wiggins and Hoy, you know, Becca Adlington, Pendleton, these amazing athletes, they're no different. They're the same DNA. They're all complete sponges. They, they're all not, not yes people. They really own their own program. They work really well with the coaches. And this is where my exposure in Olympic sport which reinforced everything I learned in the, in the rugby team about how you create champion teams. And you've got to get absolutely engaged from every individual. And if that individual doesn't want to engage, you're not going to be anywhere near as successful as you possibly can be. Now, you mentioned sponges there. Some people might not know what we're talking about, but you do have, to some degree, your own sort of vocabulary. And before we get the sponges, because that's down the track, one I do want to talk about is teachability, because that relates to what you're talking about here. And you talk about it being, if you were to work with me, you'd want me to have that buy-in. And, and the key element is an ability to take on knowledge pumped by intrinsic passion. So you've got to have that passion for the subject, which makes it that much easier to take on information and to search it out. Yeah, teachability is a bit of a, bit of a mouthful, but it is, you know, my definition of vacuum, it's your ability to learn, it's your ability to take on knowledge. And quite simply, in, in its purest sense, your passion for what you actually do. Um, you know, I remember, you know, meeting um, you know, ath- athletes who, you know, if you sat them in here now and you talked about what was going on in the Olymp- Olympics, uh, sorry, what was going on in the election, what was going on with Boris and Corbyn, you'd struggle. If you have to talk about their sport, you won't struggle. You know, these, some of these people got little or no education. But you have to, to, look, to talk about their sport, go away and study it. They'll mm. come back with them bucket loads and bucket loads and bucket loads. So this teachability, it's not about having being to the right schools or some wonderful ah. education. It's a passion for what you actually do. You, you gave the example of two boxers at the Olympics. I thought this was really nice. Yeah, there's a couple of boxers uh, who are, you know, from travelling families almost, little or no education. You know, as I said, if you sat them down here and talked about some of the stuff I spoke about, you may struggle. Talk about boxing, and I did. They, they come back in bucket loads, and, and their eyes just open. Their passion is boxing. Their knowledge, their understanding. They can talk to me all day about this. 
and I, you know, I'm just learning from them mm. because they've got this passion. And what I'm saying, if you want to be a real champion, a gold medal winner, win World Cups, you've got to have a passion. That's the underlining thing. But that's what I call teachability. Mm. And the opposite of teachability is somebody who's uncoachable, unteachable, a bit of a know-it-all, doesn't want to engage. And they could be the most talented person in the world. But in my experience, they're not going to make it. Uh, and, you know, you, you've got all sorts of examples of extremely talented people who've not made it because I think they've become unteachable, uncoachable. They do think they know it all. And you never, the moment you think you know it all, you're going to come second. Well, Socrates, yeah. wasn't he who said, the only thing I know is how little I know. No, and humility exactly. is absolutely key. And this is a, a key factor. And you had that in the way you approached being an England coach, didn't you? You, you were always looking for little bits that you could take from various areas to improve. You gave a nice bit about you'd have people come and stay at Penny Hill Park and they had to give you one thought or whatever. And even though perhaps immediately your ego might that bristle, actually, that's where you got some great ideas from. So humility's key. I used to love bringing into the England team, and the players didn't even notice these guys uh, or, or ladies, just people who are kind of friends of mine. Um, but I knew they're fans of rugby, but I knew they were successful in what, whatever they were doing from hedge fund managers to captains of industries to headmasters and headmasters of, of, of schools. And I used to just bring them in and just say, well, I want to show you everything. I'll, you sit in the back of the room and keep out the way. You don't go gaga when Johnny Wilkinson walks in. Just just keep out the way and keep a low profile. Here, honestly. But we're going to show you everything, yeah. you know, because I trusted them completely. Um, but I'm showing you everything because I want you to think, you know, is there anything else we should be doing? You used to drive me nuts when some flipping hedge fund manager who hasn't played rugby since he was prep school under eights would come up with an idea we're not thought about and we're supposed to be this high-performing team. And I always sort of laugh. And then you, you, you sit down with your team and go, listen, I've had this great idea. And that's how it kind of works, you know. <laughs> so you bring them in and it'd be amazing where new ideas can come from. Yeah. And, you know, I, I love, you know, it's, it, when, when I'm sometimes asked to speak at say, corporate uh, events, you know, I love sitting in the back of the room and listening to other people speak. Because, you, you know, I, I love sitting, you can sit in the back of the room and I've listened to amazing speakers. You just sit in the back of the room with a bit of paper and a cup of coffee and you're always thinking about things mm. and just a phrase or a saying. And that's where I've picked this all up from. And, mm. I almost pride myself on now not being good at new ideas. What I pride myself on is listening mm. and going, wow, that's a good idea. Then what I think I'm quite good at is if it's a good idea, putting it in place and making it happen, mm. getting it getting it done. I think that's what, what um, you know a good leader will always do. So that's discovered to still do, which we'll do. That's now, you talk about learning. great people having that desire to learn, Barack Obama and, and Clinton, whatever, who will factor in an hour a day yeah. of learning. Personally, I found interesting, I'm more keen to learn now than, than when I was a younger man. But a lot of people, I think, perhaps do stop looking to learn. I'm assuming then you are very much in the that Obama camp. Yeah, a bit like you. Yeah, I think when I was at school, I wasn't a great learner. I wasn't a great academic. I wasn't sort of anyone who stood out academically. I think it's more when you've got into um, this role, especially in the, well, not this role, only in the business world where I was sort of, you know, I, I joined Xerox especially. I was kind of a graduate trainee and you were really encouraged to, to study and I wanted to be successful. So I started to really study on my own. Mm. And I say to players now, you know, with the with technology now and the internet, there is no excuse. There's, there's so much out there all, 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 the, all the time. So, yeah, I, I absolutely pride myself on learning. and You know, I, I would... You know, without any exaggeration, I'd get on a plane tomorrow and go anywhere in the world if I thought I had a chance of making me a better coach or a better manager or a better person in terms of what I actually do. I think once you lose that passion, your teachability, then you're going to come second. Mm. Once you lose that, it's time to step back from whatever you're actually doing. But once you've still got that drive and passion, this is why I think people can go across different businesses, different sports. If you've got passion for it and you love it, you'll be fine. If you haven't got that absolutely drive, then I think that's where people come up short and... They seem to be surprised by it, but they and you can spot them. You can just see guys who are really putting it in. And you mentioned, you know, 
Johnny Wilkinson, Jason Robinson, all these guys. You know, as hugely talented players. You 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 see them on the pitch, on the field, and they're amazing. I've been lucky enough to see them off the pitch and just what they actually put in. You know, and they're the guys coming up with ideas. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? I've heard about this. I've read about this. And if you get the whole team inputting, suddenly you've got all these ideas, and your job as the kind of the head coach or the boss is to kind of filter them and disseminate them down to make sure you don't do them all because you just don't have time. Yeah. But if you think one, you know, this idea is going to make the boat go faster, I'll do heaven and earth to make sure we put it in place. I won't be looking back in the months or years' time going, if only we'd done that. So sometimes they, they work, most times they do. It's not a case of being reckless about it. You've got to really study them, understand it, can we afford it, can we do it, and then just drive it forward. And knowing you've got a team of people who are going to say, okay, we'll give this a go. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we, we, won't, we won't worry about that. Yeah, yeah. At, least, at least we've tried it. That's where Johnson was great. People don't understand Martin Johnson at the time. Johnson's one of the best players I've ever coached. He's, he's a rugby, people forget how good a player he was. But as captain, he was great. I was just saying, look, I'm gonna, we're going to do this. And you just go, fine, let's get on with it. Let's not don't need to talk about it. We'll soon let you know if it's going to work or not. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. we get on with it. And that was his big strength because that's what he wanted. You didn't want some guy or your captain debating and have a big issue about it. So let's get on with it and we'll mm. soon find out. To me, that's part of what life's all about is continually growing. And you can apply it, obviously, to business, to sport. You can apply it to you know, yourself, to relationships, to, to yep. any sphere. Do you agree that growth and never-ending learning, if you like, is part of what it's all about? I think it's totally so everything's about. I call it relentless learning. That's yeah. my that's my saying. You've got to be because I think I use the word in, and I think relentless applies to sport. You've got to be re- relentless about it. But there's a real process. You know, I like the idea of spending an hour a day on on me, on mm. learning, or improving yourself. Could be physically or mentally, but one hour just on yourself. And I think that's not too much to actually ask. Yeah. But it's not all the physical side. You know, I, I I like the teams of people I'm working with. I like everyone to kind of look the part, be the part, mm-hmm. get physically fit as well as mentally fit. But I, I can come back to learning and, and working in a, in a room of people where you know ideas are going to come through and you learn from each other, not only from, you, from yourself. You can really bring ideas to the table for other people to actually think about as well. So let's talk about sponges and rocks. So sponges basically are just people you know, like Martin Johnson who say, let's give it a whirl. And rocks are the people who are lacking humility and, and stuck in their ways. And something that comes up repeatedly on Don't Tell Me The Score is having a growth mindset that I'm not good at something dot, dot, dot yet. Yeah. A sponge of rock, I mean, what it is, is having a sponge between your ears or a rock between your ears. And I think key thing to stress is you're never one thing or another. And normally when you, uh, you know, join new sports teams, new companies, new jobs, you're a sponge. You, you like, you know, learning, you know, listening to programs like this just in case you were to learn something. You, you, are, a, you are a sponge. Oft, often it's the, the longer you've been in an organization, you can just drift into being a rock mm-hmm. where you, you suddenly think, I'm gonna, not going to do this anymore. And I think um, if if you become the rocker as the leader of the team, you are going to come second. But if you see someone in your team who's drifting, that's when you just got to sit them down and go, look, we've got to get you back. And we need you really inputting, thinking about this, how you used to be. And most people don't actually know they've just drifted into being a rock. It's, it's, it's not something you consciously do. And that's the secret to management. Can you get everyone in, I mean everybody, in your organization, your team, really thinking, really inputting all all the time. So it is a very conscious thing. And, you know, um, I think the, the the words kind of work. You sponge your rock, and it becomes part of the language. I, you see, the players ring me up, and you get a player ringing up. Go, look, I'm, I'm not being a rock, but <laughs> <laughs> really, it's dripped into them like that. Yeah, it's in the language. I'm a sponge yeah. or a rock, and I need everyone. Looking around, <laughs> I'm looking around the room. You, you, I need everyone to be sponges, and uh, it, it kind of it's just simple language. But I think people can understand it. Yeah. You know, sponge between your ears, yeah. not, not 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 a rock between your ears. Absolutely. And as I say, sometimes it's the more senior people have been there for a long time, where they do think they know it all. And they don't. The moment you think you know it all, 
then you, I think you're in, a, you're in a dangerous position. So to have those conversations, to bring a rock back into the, the world of sponges, uh, and, and you talk about this, the importance of, of communication. Yeah. So, so what are some of your communication rules then? Well, one, I, I probably, and I, I can say this pretty um, confidently because I've been involved with the Olympics and all their sports, I'd, I'd probably have one, more one-on-one meetings than any coach I've ever seen. Um, and sometimes it's hard because it takes more time. You, know, you see a lot of people have team meetings. To, to, to me, you, you know, the one-on-one meetings are absolutely key because you, you, you can you know, eyeball someone and really get across what you're trying to say, especially if you're not happy with them, if it's a negative. You, you can't hide from this. And certainly if you just go back to your kind of my, my business career, certainly in a big multinational in, in, say, Xerox, people get away with being a rock. You know, you can just dream to bit. No one's going to bring you back because, okay, he's been here a long time and all that stuff. When you run your own small company, you can't have a rock. You, you, and also that perhaps mm. that someone just stands out. Because if you have one rock in your team, you know, and it's a small business, you're, you're going to go out of business. You know, the kids are going to have to change schools. You've got to sell your house. This is big stuff. So running a small company, you can't, you can't hide. Mm. And, you, and you certainly can't be in a rock because your whole company is going to actually suffer for it. And that's one of the things I really, really learned. And that's why I, th- you know, I really admire people running small businesses be- because you know how tough it is. But it's far more exciting be- because you're involved with this, you know, ev- every day we're trying to take on the big boys and all this sort of stuff. And the same happened in sport and the rugby team. You know, I was very, very clear. You know, I look back on my England career with huge kind of re- regrets. You're hugely proud to play for England. But looking back, we never really took on the, the big boys. We, mm. we never said, we can be better than the All Blacks. When I took over the team, you know, I had to sort of shut up, you know, put up or shut up now because I've been saying all this stuff. So you get the big job. And I said, right. And I was very clear. The only enemy, and it was the only enemy, was the All Blacks, South Africa and Australia. That was it. I kind of like the Six yeah. Nations. I love France. These are our kind of friends. Yes, we compete. But the real enemy was the Hemisphere. And we had to now absolutely take them on. And those games became the big games of the year. The Six Nations was great fun. The big games, can we start to beat Australia? Because we had to get the mindset yeah. over them. But we... We had to do it on the field of play, but off the field of play. We had to become better than everything we actually did, which I've got no doubt we did. By by 2003, I think those three teams especially were looking at England. We are the number one team in the world, but they were going, what the hell are they doing now? And Eddie yeah. said Eddie said really complimentary things about us. You know, He said, you know, we're all chasing England now. Yeah. And But then, unfortunately, after the World Cup, it all fell apart. But that sort of comes back to what I was sort of saying at the beginning in terms of get that inferiority complex. And I loved what you did in terms of stopping calling them the All Blacks and referring to them as New Zealand. Yeah. You know, some well, of stick for that, by the way. Yeah. But, but what a, that was a masterstroke, you know. Right, so m- communication we spoke about. Another thing that I that came up that I really enjoyed, but you talk about mindset. And again, this comes back to it, rather than... You know, you being the guy who tells everyone how things should be, it's about getting people to have buy-in, to be part of the process. Again, I, you know, and I guess this is from my just business training. I, I love these little – one of my favourite things is there's no such thing as a dumb idea. It doesn't matter if you're the newest person on the team. If you've got a thought or idea of something we can do that's better, you've got to stand up and say it, whether it's private to me, one-on-one, or in front of the team. There's no such thing as a dumb idea. Where you and me are going to really fall out, if you're sitting there with a thought and you're kind of – a bit nervous about saying so because you're you're worried about what I may think as as the as the head of the team, or you're going to get some banter and stick from your teammates. Then we are going to fall out. So you you got to get that culture where people are very confident about what they're what they're what they're putting in. And also, especially the England team. Think of the England team. It, it's it's not a full time business. These players all come from twelve different clubs. They've all got great coaches. They've all got different ways of doing things. So you've got to find a way 
where very quickly we can create the England way of actually doing things that kind of takes into account everything you've done in, in your own clubs. All the, they're all very different. Mm. Even just simple stuff, you know, the way Leicester will defend will be different than the way Wasps defend. So suddenly you've got players coming in with different ways of doing things. So your job, my job as head coach, was to get all these ideas coming in and then absolutely make decisions. This is what we're going to actually do. You know, you, you, you can't delegate the whole thing. But what you do want is real open debate, real open discussions. You know, our team meetings got a bit tasty at times. They, they, were, they were great fun because we wanted to win. And that's what I really loved. I loved when things got a little bit spiky, you know, the testosterone was flying around the room. But as long as we all walked out of the room holding hands and smiling, that was what it's all about. But I think in the team meeting rooms, because we want to win, and when we start to you know, evaluate some of the performance and some of the stuff, it, it really got quite interesting at times because we wanted to win. We knew we had a team that could win the World Cup. And this was a chance of a lifetime, but we weren't going to win it if we're all going to sit there and actually be sort of a little bit quiet or conservative in putting our views forward. And, you know, it was my job then, a new guy comes in the team, because we could have an 18-year-old, and I'm saying, this guy could be right. You know, I'm not assuming mm. he's... I, I often he was. He, he comes with a fresh thought, fresh ideas. So it was my job to encourage this person to speak to me one-on-one, -on -one, or, more importantly, what I used to love, speaking in, in the actual team meeting, have the confidence of an 18-year-old to stand there and say something, knowing that Johnson, Delalio, and these guys were all looking at him and, you know, not being worried about the consequences. And that, that says a lot about the mindset of any individual. And also, you, you spot people, you, you don't want people just speaking for speaking's sake. You, you're trying to evaluate what they're actually saying and does it make any sense at all. Um, and I think that's how you grow the business. And you, you've spoken a few times about growth, growth mindset. It's growth mindset individually and collectively mm -hmm. within, within the whole team. And you need psychological safety to be able to come into the meetings and know that any idea you come up with is not going to be shot down. Sure, totally. You talk about having an eight, like a young guy come in who might have those ideas. What I find interesting then, to go back to your England career, because you wanted to play an expansive running style of rugby, that at that time there was this pervasive idea that it's not the dumb thing. Yeah. Playing for England helped me hugely because you know, I'd kind of been there, got the T-shirt, but hugely frustrating the way we, we played because I look back at my England career, you know, this way I'm not showing my kids the videos of me playing rugby <laughs> because they'd all walk out and make a cup of tea because I hardly ever touched the ball. Yeah. I spent most of the time looking up in the air trying to catch the ball. We just kicked the ball all, all day. Um, and I, I, you know, I had this feeling or this, this kind of vision of, you know, Twickenham, 85,000 people on their feet going nuts by the way we're playing, which I'd never seen before. Twickenham was this quite, quite sangrid, kind of almost dull place where people just watched the game, had a few beers. Mm -hmm. There was no excitement because there was no excitement on the pitch to where we were playing. So my opening third to the players, we, we, you know, and, and I was doing this not to be kind of romantic or anything, was to actually say, if we get 85,000 people on the feet going nuts by the way we're playing, we'll be doing everything right and we're going to take some beating. So we're now going to really look at how we do about that. And this was all about not kicking the ball away, about playing the game so fast from 1 to 15. We're going to play the game faster than anybody else. This was faster than scrums, faster than lineouts. We're going to have to be the fittest team in the world, which when we started, we were nowhere near it. And we're going to play a game that no one can actually live with. And even now, looking back at that 2003, I still think we're ahead of the, the current team in terms of just the speed we played the game at. You look at the physical conditioning the players were in in 2003, it was amazing. And I think we did take the game to a whole new level based on the way we played and just look at the number of tries we scored. Mm. And the players loved it. There was genuine excitement. And when I'm picking my team also, I'm also thinking Saturday morning, I want to wake up, see that team should go, wow. Well, whatever happens today, this team is going to play. But more importantly, the opposition have to play really well to beat this team. And that's how I picked my team. Took, took, took certain risks on players. So I wanted to play the game fast, fast, fast. And no one ever done that before, ever, in an England shirt. And 
you know, I, we we generally got 85,000 people on the feet going nuts by the way we played. Absolutely. And our wing-loss ratio between World Cups was astonishing. I think we played, I think, I think I know, we played 51 games and won 46, um, including 14 away from home. So we played the Sun Hemisphere, the teams we had to beat. We beat them 14 times in a row. Away, and that was unheard of. Yeah. But it, it wasn't just because we had these amazing players, which we did, but they really bought into this, we're going to do something special and we're going to you know, love the way we actually play the game now, which I didn't really do as an England player. I love playing for England. Don't make no bones about it. It was great playing for England. Say you play for England. But <laughs> equally, I'd love to have looked at games and I'd go, wow, just watch this game. It was fantastic. And I can look back at so many of those games between between, between the two World Cups, just winning it, where you look back from a player, a coach, or a fan, you're, wow, that's a great game to watch. So let's say that someone would come to you with an idea and from from the club, is this where your performance behaviours come in? Your dis, your discover, distill, do so. You would take an idea from one of them. So that's the discovery part. Distill it down into a single line and then put it into practice. Yeah, I call this three D learning, and I, I don't I have a clue where I picked this up from, but I've had this forever. I can never. I, it's where I look at any any situation. So three D learning is if you let's just talk about um, uh, scrum defence. So you, scrum, you have scrum defense. So you've got scrum, we're going to defend the scrum. So the discover is we're going to get all this information in from all 12 clubs, all the players. We're going to just put all this information. And you never stop discovering. You're, you're, you're learning about what this actually means, what it entails. So you're not just learning from the players, you're learning everything. But the most important thing then is once you've got all this discover, how do you distill it, the second D, in the 3D learning, how you distill it down to key points. Like, I have all this stuff we've learned. Yeah. What are the key points? So, what to be able to put it into like a sentence, essentially. Simple, maybe three or four just bullet points. Bang, bang, bang. It's easy to understand. Totally. It's got to be in simple English. Everyone understands, whoever you are. If I explain it to you, anybody, you'd go, understand. And that's a, that's a real art. That's the job of your head coach. But you never stop discovering, never stop learning. And you can change these key points, your distilled points, as you, as you go along. But maybe three, three or four. Then the third D is do. Okay, once we know our key points, which could be, say, defensive scrum, line speed, how do we do it better than anybody else? How do we practice it? How do we train for it? How do we become a real part, part of what we actually do? So the do is really important. Mm. And also to start to be quite creative. How do we do this? How does, how does a player do this on his own in his back garden with his, with his kids? How can you still be practicing stuff when you're away from the training paddock? And that is really important. So that's the 3D learning. And yeah. it's just so simple, but it kind of works. But again, you need the players to understand it. So they're inputting, here's the key points, how do we do it? And even on the do, you know, if, you, if, you, if anyone can think of a practice, how we do this better, just make sure you bring it in. Of course, yeah. we're getting stuff from all over the place then. And that's it. And that was the 3D learning. So you can use it to any subject you can think about, right. anything. Can you, just, can you think of a, just a quick example of, of, of like one that would go all the way through? I can give you hundreds. Let's use the, the drop, really simple one, yeah. The drop goal routine. When, when zigzag. The World zigzag. You know, so you, you you talk about drop goals. Uh, I think drop goals are huge. We start to examine drop goals, um, and you'd learn from '99, of course. The guy, well, we learned <laughs> in a brutal fashion. Five drop goals. When I watched that again, what I can't believe about those drop goals is the miles out. He was slotting them from everywhere. From everywhere, they weren't like in front of the post, no, like no, halfway no. line. I've never bang. seen a drop. There's never been a drop goal performance like missed. that. Shani De Beer. And he didn't. He, they're all like they weren't just in front of the post. <laughs> yeah. So, so we start we started examining. Drop goals, for example, and drop goals to me, not just to win the World Cup in the last minute, but it could be the first minute. You know, we decide mm. when we're going to drop goal because it's you can't defend it. No. I remember this great conversation with I think it was um, Johnny and, and Mike Cat, and this was a serious conversation. I said, okay, just forget the, the rules of rugby. 
we did get no points for scoring tries. We only we only score by scoring drop goals. How many we get in a game? Of course, they looked at me. I could see they were going, "Oh, here we go. What's, where's he going on this?" <laughs> so Johnny, I said, "Oh, Johnny, how many, how many we get? We've got you in the team. We've got Cat in the team. We both drop goals. How many we get?" I think Johnny said like ten, and then Cat goes, "No, it'd probably be 12. I said, "Okay, let's say it's ten. That's thirty points. How many people are going to score thirty points against this England team? Nobody. So why don't we do it? Just silence in the room." <laughs> Total silence. You know where I'm going. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I said, "This is important stuff." And I, so, and um, so then we start to discover, really, think what it's about. But then, most important, what are the key points about drop goals? You know. And then we came up with this distill here, here are the key points. And the zigzag is just how you, you know, when you, you, you know, normally from a drop best goal, way of doing it. The best way of doing it. A drop goal, you're probably coming from a scrum or a line out. The World Cup drop goal that yeah. won won the World Cup for us came from a line out. And then we just go zigzag, which is going left, right, left, right. You, you don't go wide. And the whole mindset of the team is, can we get the ball right under the post so you can't miss? So you can't miss. We're right, And you just punch, punch, punch. Because also what happens, the defence knows the drop goal's coming. So they start to go a bit wider. They're going to try and get the charge down. And that's what happens. Dawson, so goes, Dawson, goes. Dawson goes through. And we thought about that. And we practiced that. And we drilled this and drilled this and drilled this. And it's interesting. It's, it's, you know, if you, you can see me on the touchdown, you know, that flipping drop goal. Because we've gone... I think we're still not close enough. We can go further. We get makes easy yards, and then I can see Dawson lining up. Wilkinson, Wilson's gone back. Uh, so Wilkinson's gone back in the pocket. I'm on the touch. I'm shouting no. I'm shouting no, no, because I think we should go yeah, further. Yeah. So we can't miss. This yeah. is it. Yeah, yeah. There's like one minute to go. So Wilkinson, you know, swings his right foot, goes same between the posts. See so then me shouting yes, yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> At the time, I thought we were too far out. Right. I was wanting to go another couple yeah. of couple of things. So. But it, was, it wasn't just one of those things. I think, think people's sport just happens. That was a whole process mm. based on how we broke the game down and the 3D learning of Discovered still do was how I, as a coach, implemented it through, through the players from a coaching team and how we practised it. Uh, two things to say. First of all, it shows as well that what might seem like a bad experience at the time, the 1999 quarterfinal, may end up being a bit of a blessing in disguise. That was a bad experience. <laughs> yeah, you said you were in mourning for a few days. In, in, anyway, well, we won't dwell few, on that. A few years. If, right. I, uh, I spoke to Johnny Wilkinson on here. It's well worth uh, having a listen to, to Johnny talk through his drop goal because it was like a, a, an out-of-body experience. But that's a, I mean, a, a clear illustration then of... Of your um, discover to still do right. Moving on, let's talk about wasps. Now you're a wasp, Clive, aren't you? Someone willing to challenge things. You've got to have that person who is in a team or in a setup in a business who comes in and says, "Why are we doing this?" And you talk about um, what's name? Yehuda Shinner. Yehuda Shinner. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what he brought to the table? Yehuda Shinner was introduced to me by um, a very good friend of mine called Michael Spiro, who was the boss of a company called Elenex. And um, in my finance day, we used to do all their financing. And he just, when I was now coaching England, he just said, I've just met this guy called Yudar Shanir in, in Tel Aviv. And he's ex-Israeli um, uh, um, uh, Air Force or Armed Forces. But he's, he's come up with this program called Winning Behaviours. And he said, I think it's fascinating. So it's me being a sponge, never, this is great, put him in touch with me. Next thing, I'm on a plane to Tel Aviv. Now, I'm coaching England at the time. I literally couldn't wait to go and see this guy because he just sounded fascinating. Yeah. So never been to Tel Aviv in my life before. Just me explaining me getting onto the El Al plane would be a, 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 an experience in itself. But I eventually got on this plane. I'm in Tel Aviv. And he was he was amazing. Um, and he literally met me at the airport and went to, back to his house. And he caught, he started calling this thing called seat-up, which is correctly thinking under pressure. Oh. 
and that's where it came from. And uh, but his first thing he said to me, and it was a fascinating thing. I've been coaching him for about a year, I think, or two years. He just said to me, "Okay," and it, this is why I loved him. He said, "I know nothing about rugby. Yeah. There's not a lot of rugby played in Tel Aviv, if we're if we're brutally honest." He said, "I've never heard of rugby. I'm a, I'm a kind of a military person. Mm. I understand football. Um, what are the basics of rugby?" So I kind of looked at him, and I my immediate question was, "Well, what, what do you mean?" He said, well, he said, that's not a good start to our conversation. What are the basics of rugby? And I started thinking about it, and I couldn't answer him. You know, I said, what do you mean by basics? He said, what are the things you've absolutely got to get right? And I started to think about it. You know, was, it was it tackling? Was it passing? Was it all this stuff? I couldn't answer it. And he just said, and he, and he said, well, that sums, we've got a lot of work to do. So if you don't know the basics, you don't know the things you've got to get absolutely right, the chances are your team don't, your players don't, and you're all over the place. So I'm like looking at him. It's really annoying me, this guy at this stage, because I, I couldn't answer the questions. And um, I, I went back. I couldn't wait to get my... I spent two days with him, literally in his house, locked in his room, learning all this stuff. And I went back to the, my England coaches, and I sat down with the coaches, Andy Robinson, Phil Larder, Dave Redden, Dave, all, all these amazing guys. And I said, OK, what are the basics of rugby? And of course, they couldn't answer me. And they all got different, different answers. So we started to really study this, study this thing called basics. In other words, what are the things you've absolutely got to get right? And we studied them, and they became so obvious. And the, the basics of rugby became so obvious, quite simply, scrums, line-outs, and restarts. And even that, scrums was 40%, line-outs was 40%, and restarts was 20-20. So we basically learned by all the stats and data that if we picked our kind of reasonably best team within two or three players, if we put the ball in at scrum on 100% of the ball, and if we put the ball in the lineouts and won 85% of the ball, we never lost a game. So suddenly the basics became that. And then suddenly we start to introduce the players and we start to realize this was the most important thing. That of all this stuff, you know, all this wonderful, amazing stuff, unless you get your scrum right, your lineout right, and your restarts right, especially your scrums like, you can't win the game. So that suddenly started to affect the way we coached, the way we played, the, the way I selected the team, and the, and the whole thing. And this thing, that last World Cup final, you know, 14 scrums, and I think we conceded six penalties. You can't win the game. You can't win the game. That, that's it. So suddenly the basics become absolutely key. So I'd, I'd say to you as a, as a broadcaster, what are the basics? What are the absolute, okay. say, the two things without any shape? If I get this right, yeah. if I get this right, I know I'm going to do a good interview or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And you go to companies or sports teams. You've got to let me answer it, Clive. I'm going to ask you. To put, <laughs> you, you but you, you go to companies and sports teams. Um, and you ask them that, and you get the same thing. They, no one can actually say that is the absolute thing we've got to get right. So, so what are the basics? So here, here they are, and and actually, it comes back to another one of your sayings, which is confidence is preparation. And for yeah. me, it is two things: preparation. Yeah. As you've seen, I've done I a lot of see, yeah, I've done amazing. a lot of research for you. And then the other thing is just planning structure. Those two things, and then and then they're obviously, so you know obviously you, hit record. But the, you know, if you know you get those right, there's a really high chance you're going to, yeah, yeah. which is fantastic. But you, you find a lot of people don't. Interesting, I went to a, um, a a company. A friend of mine works there. It was it was a big um, uh, amusement. Um, well, not not arcade, but you know where these roller coasters, yeah, all this. Yeah. It's a big business. Theme park, yeah. Theme park. Sorry, it was a big big business. And I sat down with the senior management and said, okay, what, what are the basics? And for the, the first company ever, they all as one immediately, safety. They just safety, 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 safety. Unless we all understand the important, if we have one bad instance in here, this place gets shut down. And they understood that. So the basics of their business wasn't creating these wonderful rides and all that sort of stuff. The thing they had to get right, and they're the, probably the only business where I've had 
literally say 10 out of 10 people go write it down that was the number one thing they all got that that's what's a great start because you can build on that now so how but how do we do safety better how what are our key points how do we practice it how do we do it how do we don't just don't just park it over there and say we think we've done this you must always keep on top of it so in rugby scrums are lineouts. You, you the top level unless you can do all you like unless you can scrum properly and win your lineup properly you can't win the game no and that's what and we saw it in the Rugby World Cup final, didn't we? You that, know, England's that, England that was scrum. It. That was it. People, said, then... people said to me, what happened? That's what happened. Yeah. You, can, you can talk all day about all the other stuff. Their scrum got smashed. And you can't... I, I can't recall... I coached England over 80 times. I can't recall yeah. our scrum ever going backwards because I learned this really early on. You've got to have a scrum that can... You know, we spent... Then we, based on that alone, we hired Phil Keith Roach, one of the best scrum coaches in the world, full-time. Your full-time job is to make sure... You make sure I pick the right people to scrummage properly, but more upon the coaching side of you, we get ahead of anyone else in our ability to scrum. We we then take on a full time line out guy and Simon Hardy, full time line out coach. These are the real specialist coaches who are working for me, Andy Robinson, who are like the main coaches. But we had real specialists in these basics that we knew we had to get right. And your only job is line out and scrum. That's your job in life. Now you start to put that on people who are good coaches, then you'll get results, and they then affect your selection, how you train, everything else. So the basics are absolutely key in terms of you know, any high-performing team. But you've got to understand what they actually are. And everyone in your organisation yeah. will go bang, bang, bang. That's the basics of our game. Right. One we obviously have to talk about is teacup. And, and this, what I really like about teacup, so thinking clearly... Correctly. <laughs> crikey. So I'm not doing it. Thinking correctly under pressure is the idea that you can train mental toughness. Yeah. Talk about teacup and also how someone listening could improve their teacup. Well, first of all, teacup came from Yudar Shanir, because yeah. yeah, yeah. the, the, the Israeli guy, you mentioned the Royal Marines, I mean, he was, he was a, a military person, and he was just talking about what they did in the in Israeli armed forces, and he said, you know, we're all about pressure. And he said, you know, if you think of the history of Israel, you know, that they've, they've learned from what their history is, you know, we're not going to ever, ever be pressurized or not handle any situation. So they're tough. But I changed, and he got really stressed with me about this because I've got this seat up, and I've just moved the records around. So instead of seat up, let's call it teacup, a very English word, which I won't forget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of correctly, and he's, he's no, you can't, he's, and he got really quite annoyed at me. And I went, well, I, I don't care what you're yeah, saying. Yeah. I, I can just the see laws the, and rules. Yeah, I can yeah. just see this teacup. Yeah. And teacup is thinking correctly under pressure. And it, it's very straightforward. And uh, if you think of people listening who have got children, say, you know, I've got three kids, they're all kind of grown up now. And if they're listening to this, they'd all fold their arms and cross their legs and go, oh, no, here he goes off in his teacup stuff. It's, a, it's an education process because what we're saying is they're normal kids. They're out there. They will come across pressure situations. If they've not experienced them before, which probably the chances are they won't, but more importantly, they've not thought through what would I do if that was to happen to me in that situation uh, or they've not discussed it with their friends or their parents or their family, the chances of thinking correct and the pressure are really small. All these horrendous words kick in, you know, choke, freeze, bottle, rabbits in the headlights. Conversely, if you've thought through in a non-pressurized situation, if this was to happen, what would we do? There's a very high chance, backed up by the most sophisticated data, you'll think correctly and make the right decision in that moment in time. But it's not about experience. It's about actually thinking through in advance. What am I going to do in that, in that situation? So what I did with the rugby team was to actually just role play situation after situation after situation. Mm. And at times I used to like having three things available in, the, in a team room, a, a clock, a scoreboard and a whiteboard. And I'd just bring a player up and say, you used to use Matt Dawson, one of your BBC guys, who, you know, brilliant player, but the, one of the brightest guys I've ever played with. 
I just that stand Dawson in front of these three things. Okay, scoreboard. You know, England 12, Australia 16. We're four points down. Clock, there's five minutes to go. Then on the whiteboard, I'd set up a situation and say, what would you do? Now, if he or she, if I'm talking to the ladies' team, that player can't answer me immediately. Potentially, there's somebody who's not at the moment been able to think correct in the pressure. Because most pressure things have a time, a time thing attached to them. So if, if Matt's got to stand there and go, OK, what would we do here? We haven't got time to do that. We're four points down. Here's the situation. What would you do? So Matt would say what he'd do, sit down, we'd then have a debate in the team about it, and we wouldn't leave the room until we'd all 100% agree that's what we would do. So then when it happens in the real world, on Saturday or, you know, there's a high chance you'll make the right decisions, and you end up with a library of all this stuff. You just keep, 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 keep. Now, you can change it, but you just keep all this sort of stuff. And I see so many sports teams mm. in all sports when the real pressure, you can see them trying to make it up at, at that moment in time, that's what you can't do. And I think this teacup stuff is, is, is huge. And it's just a, it's how you educate people to think correctly under pressure. And the key word is correctly. Can you, make, can you make the correct decisions in that moment in time? So a, a couple of examples you gave, really nice ones. So um, at the Olympics, obviously, because you were involved uh, very closely with, with 2012, a key person in that. But So uh, Emily Seaboam, the Australian swimmer, Australian swimmer yeah. Yeah, who basically what, knocked out um, you know the fastest time in the in the heats, and then said, you know, she she just assumed she'd won, so she hadn't considered defeat and lost to Missy Franklin. But the one that really, I shouldn't say tickled, but did tickle me somewhat, was, was the uh, Chinese divers. divers. So just yeah, explain what. Happened. Well, that was that was some of the Athens games. And it's oh, just, right, it's okay. just a very famous one. But you know these these two divers called Bo and Kanan, they were the they'd never been beaten, um, they never lost, and, and quite simply, what happened was. After you do five dives to win the gold medal in the synchronized pairs, after four dives they're way ahead. So they've got you know they're way ahead. I think it was the Americans and Russians in second and third. So these two have got one dive to win the gold medal. You know they're the world champs. They've never been beaten. They're the two, two superstars of world diving. China the best diving country bar none. So they do this dive and they literally land on their backs. It was the worst dive you've ever ever seen. It's a bit like you and me doing it <laughs> after a few beers on a Saturday night. It was that bad. And what all that happened was when they were about to dive, uh, this guy had got through all the Greek security. This is in Athens in the, in the uh, Athens Games. He had got through the Greek security and he got up on the springboard. So if you imagine the high diving board, they had this other guy who got, he's on the springboard. He's got a tutu on and <laughs> numbers on his chest, which is a betting number. So they can't dive basically because this guy's on the board jumping up and down and eventually jumps in and it all kicks off. This was a huge security breach. It doesn't even need to tell you or your audience you know the history of olympic games and security isn't crash shot so when something like this happens it's a huge huge thing so they can't dive so they're sent back down the changing room and they sat down there for a huge amount of time because they never experienced this before so what they what happened is they lost their routine they lost their merge, merge they've never been asked to back off a dive i mean you think that's ridiculous because there's so many things could happen when you're on the, on the top diving board you're about to dive you know and i've sort of thought about this through and done sort of um you know uh, uh, exercises with a lot of people about this. I've, I'm up to about 30 things could happen from, you know, from uh, pigeons to lasers to a terrorist attack to electricity to all sorts of stuff. You know, someone's ill in the... Mm. Up to 30 things could actually happen for the judge to say, you can't dive back down the changing room. So it could happen. So what I'm saying is, that is a classic teacup moment. Can you think correctly? So what would you do is delay 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour. But you, what you don't do is sit there and think, what the hell are we going to do now? And they just completely choked. Then they came out and made their dive. That's when they landed on their back and they came eighth. Yeah. So that one moment in time, they didn't understand how to think correctly in the pressure, purely because they're not through, thought through ever, could this happen? 
So this comes about what we've been speaking about is ideas coming through from all the team about, oh, we've got this covered, we've got this covered. And you mentioned the Royal Marines. You know, I learned so much from the Royal Marines because, you know, when you think about the Royal Marine officer, these guys who go to, to war to look after us, their average age is 21, 22. They've not experienced all this stuff. But what they do, and we learn this, they spend hours and hours and hours in the classroom just going through scenario after scenario after scenario. So they are amazing sportsmen. They're amazing athletes. They can run forever, these guys. They're incredibly fit. They're great with their rifles, all this stuff. But their real skill is how they think correctly in pressurized situations. And what they taught me is you can't possibly experience this because we're, we're all young people. And also, you, if you imagine war, you get into the most bizarre predicaments. But the more you can actually think about it, and their big thing is can they think correctly under pressure? And that, that, that again... You know, we learned so much from those. And that was I said before about you, you go on the pitch, it's nil-nil. It doesn't matter what happens on the pitch, you've got to come out having won. You know, these guys in the, in the military, Yudai Shanir, the Royal Marines, they get on that helicopter, they think they know what's going to happen. All they know is they've got to get back on the helicopter and come back in one piece and safe and done whatever their, 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 their job is. But what they're making clear is it doesn't happen the way you know, it's always yeah. supposed to happen. You know, yeah. teacup allows you to think. And once you get away with this thinking, even if something comes up you've not thought about before, there's a chance are you'll you'll think. You're okay, thinking in that way. In that way, you've got yeah. that process in, in, in yeah. You've got that process in place. And we did a huge amount of things like that. Hence, back to the World Cup final. I was so pleased the way we handled the referee, what was yeah. going on, because there's pressure everywhere, and we could have completely folded and lost that game. Yeah. And been the fourth team to make the final and not win. Yeah, yeah. Which that's why I come back to it. The more I think about it, that is England's best ever game. So those Chinese divers as well, they came out and, and they did to some degree blame it on on the man in the tutu. And that you know when you've got this teacup, then that feeds into another thing that you talk about, which is having a no moaning culture, no what ifs. No what you know, ifs, and if yeah. they'd have been thinking in that way, that they wouldn't have done that. And you did say something very uh, interesting just quickly about this. You mentioned your kids. You talk a lot when they were growing up about teacup with you with your kids. Yeah, so you great. can apply this. Anyone listening, this isn't just for sports teams or business. This is any. Totally. Yeah, it's you know just think of you know on the streets when they're out in pubs, nightclubs, whatever. I'm talking about children now. Yeah. You know how are they going to handle this? What are you going to do? So it's you know you, you just keep to a to, to a fault, trying to make them understand what can actually happen and using your own experience to to make sure that they've got all the bases covered. You know, honestly, now they're all kind of grown up all around the world. I get texts and. Tweets from all around the world going, Dad, have a look at this. Not a lot of teacup going on here. And it's in sport and so business. It's ingrained in there. It's, it's ingrained. I mean, yeah. I, you know, without being too serious about this, but it is a serious subject. If, if, if you're walking down the street in Oxford Street and someone comes out with a knife, what do you do? Have you thought about it? Or do you just freeze yeah, and go, good. what do I do? Yeah. Now, if you've actually thought through what I would actually do, there's a higher chance, I think, under a real pressure situation, which just become some nutter comes out from any, anywhere. It can happen to anybody. You know that. Yeah. Um, what do you do? How do you handle it? You know, what are you wearing at the time? What clothes can you defend yourself with? All this sort of stuff. And this is what you just learn to do. And that's that one incident can actually save you or not. And it's just really being on top of all this sort of stuff. And it's a, it's just teacup. And, you know, as I've got three great kids, but they understand this. And I've just become a grandfather for the first time. So, Congratulations. So Jess will now be teaching her little daughter, <laughs> Zephy teacup i'm sure so she'll kind of understand it even more now now she's a parent very final thing and this one won't take long is is moving beyond number one well what beyond number one and again i got this listening to a um as a conference where the company i was at they're the number one in the world so the number one in the world and uh we got to number one in the world two years for the world cup we were number one ranked team in 2000 2001 so i I think we could have won the world cup any, any any time then so when you get to number one what do you do 
because suddenly everyone's chasing you. You are there to be shot at. So what what number one was, and I, I, I learned this from this this business. We're now not going to become just the number one rugby team in the world. We're going to become the number one sports team in the world. So we're now going to we're now going to start to study other sports, other things we do. And if anybody in sport is looking in to say, okay, we want to look at someone, they're going to come look at the England rugby team. What are we doing around you know all these things around nutrition, data analytics, sports psychology, all this sort of stuff? Let's go and study other sports to make sure we're ahead of other sports and what we're actually doing. So you kind of open your doors a bit. So we're going beyond number one. So we're not satisfied of being the best rugby team in the world. Can we be the best sports team in the world? Or can we, can we be the best uh, team sports team in the world? Start to actually then invest in your team, your, your coaches, some of your players even, to go and see what other people are actually doing to make sure we're beyond number one. And that's, you know, and that's why, I, again, I learned from the business world. It's a great term, and we use that big time. We were number one in the world. What do we do now? Do we just sit here and be shot at, or do we go to a whole new level so these guys are still chasing us? Yeah. And that's what I was most proud of doing. And I used to leak stuff to the press and to make sure, you know, Eddie Jones in Australia was reading this because he'd be thinking, <laughs> oh, my God, what are they doing now? Yeah. And sometimes it was exaggerated a bit, but I knew the impact it was having because I wanted them all to think we're not standing still. We're not just waiting here now. We're going beyond number one and we're moving forward still. Which ties back into that continual growth and learning, which yeah. is what it's all about on an individual, a business and a sporting level. Okay. Right, uh, Clive Woodward, Sir Clive Woodward, it's been an absolute joy having you in. Thank you very much. Thank I thoroughly you. enjoyed How to Win, another uh, absolute belter of a book. Very kind of you to say so. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons podcast. I've got some cracking new guests coming up. And of course, my long-awaited book is out soon. Until next time, goodbye.